Greetings and welcome to episode two of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast project of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am a senior fellow at the Bridge Initiative uh, at Georgetown. I'm a human rights lawyer, founder of themuslimguy.com, and author of the book Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. And one of the back cover endorsement quotes is by a gentleman, a dear friend of mine named uh, Peter Beinart of Jewish Currents and the New York Times, uh, where he says, from the United States to France to India, the struggle against Islamophobia is inextricably intertwined with the struggle for freedom. Arsalan Iftikhar lays out the stakes and offers a vision for the struggle ahead. Peter Beinart, your check is in the mail, but I would like to welcome you <laughs> to this uh, episode of un Unpacking Islamophobia. For my uh, guests who don't know about Peter, Peter teaches national reporting and opinion writing at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Go CUNY. Peter's also an editor-at-large for Jewish Currents, a CNN political commentator, a contributor to the New York Times, and a former Rhodes Scholar. And most importantly to me, he is a uh, dear, dear friend of mine. First of all, would like to, to thank you uh, for uh, joining us here today. Uh, like I said, you're a dear friend of mine, which is probably why you accepted my request. But uh, <laughs> anti-Semitism and Islamophobia uh, are both what I like to call fruits of the same poisonous Abrahamic tree. And they all originate within this this conspiracy theory that is known worldwide as the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. And six months after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in March 2019, a white supremacist walked into two mosque locations in Christchurch, New Zealand, and proceeded to murder live on Facebook Live with the cam camera on his helmet 51 Muslim worshippers from the ages three to 71, and he also left behind a manifesto which he entitled The Great Replacement. Now, The Great Replacement, for people who don't know, is actually coined by a 74-year-old Frenchman named Renaud Camus, C-A-M-U-S, no relation to Albert Camus. This 74-year-old man, Renaud Camus, is only, has only historically been known for one thing, and that was that in the 1970s, he used to write gay erotic literature. And the reason that I mentioned this, Peter, is to show how unserious both white supremacy and the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory are. And this is my long-winded way of asking you question number one here in the video called Five Islamophobia Questions with Peter Beinart. What are your thoughts on the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory and more importantly, how it's metastasized all over the world to weaponize Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-Hispanic acts of mass murder and why people should be aware of this when it's being spouted on the daily news with Tucker Carlson on Fox News on a virtually daily basis. Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Um, I think if you go back in European history, um, you find that very frequently Jews were perceived as the threat within and Muslims were perceived as a threat without. It's not obviously there were also Muslims, of course, in Europe, and there were Jews outside of Europe, but there was the perception of kind of Muslims that were the were the people at the gates of Vienna threatening to come in. And the Jews were already there, but the Jews were a threat from within. And I think the great replacement theory, in a way, is an extension of that old fear that has existed in white Christian um, society, white Christian politics, which is the idea is that 
Of course, European countries and the United States essentially were empires that went and expended their influence around the world, and partly in that imperial process, ended up bringing a lot of people, a lot of people from different parts of the developing world, including from the Muslim world, emigrated to Europe or the United States, often from the former colonies of those former countries. And so that then changes the demography of France, of Italy, of, of Britain, of, of the United States, of the United States, and particularly, of course, a larger Latin American influence because of we're on the border of Latin American because we've destabilized so much of Central America in particular that people have then come for refuge to our shores. And the, what happens in this discourse, which is this great replacement discourse, this idea that white people are being um, are, are that, that because non-white or non-Christian people are coming, that white people are physically threatened, right? That somehow they're going to be exterminated, that Jews play a particular role in this discourse as the kind of the enemy within, the people who are kind of secretly unlocking the gates that allow these hordes, you know, uh, uh, Muslims or uh, Black people or Hispanic people in. And I think it particularly fits because the stereotype of Jews has often been of the kind of evil, sinister genius, whereas the stereotype of non-white peoples has often been of a kind of racist stereotype about racial inferiority. And because of this racist stereotype about inferiority, it raises the, the problem of how are these people managing to invade and take over your own country if they are inferior, right? How can they do it, right? This guy who shot who, who, who did this mass murder in Pittsburgh started out by being obsessed with these migrant caravans of people looking for refuge from Central America. But because he was a racist, he didn't believe they could organize this, these movements themselves. So he looked to George Soros and the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society as the sinister evil geniuses who were organizing it, the hidden hand. And I think that's a trope that you tend to see a lot. And it's a way in which Jews and anti-Semitism feature in this in this law. It's not that people feel that they're going to be overwhelmingly demographically overwhelmed by Jews. There just aren't enough Jews, but they feel that Jews will be uh, a part of an ingredient in this demographic threat from the global South, and that Jews therefore represent a particular threat. And the fact that this is metastasizing worldwide, um, you know, there have been studies in the UK which have found that great replacement. Uh, searches on Twitter has have increased five to sevenfold within just the last three years alone. And so it's important for all of our audience members and really people in general to understand whenever you hear so, uh, you know a phrase blank, people are coming to take over. That's just uh, an amalgam. That's just one derivative of that great replacement conspiracy theory. We saw it in the Charlottesville protests, you know, with the, the guys with their tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us or you will not replace whoever they were talking about, again, is that manifestation of the great replacement conspiracy theory, which actually leads me to my second question, which is really just the political climates that we often find ourselves in and, and how those help to perpetuate racism, whether it's Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and the like. And here in the United States, I always like to tell people that American Islamophobia is very different than European Islamophobia, which is very different than Asian Islamophobia. And I'm sure you can make those distinctions about anti-Semitism as well. But at least from within the American political framework, being Muslim in America, let's be honest, has become a slur, right? It has become a pejorative and it has become a bullseye. And we've seen that bullseye most recently with Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and her 
less than ceremonial removal from the House Foreign Relations Committee uh, in an act of just bipartisan hackery. But I wanted to get your thoughts not only on Ilhan Omar and the targeting that she's received, but to sort of break down the different layers of um, of, of racism and sexism and misogyny. Like, I mean, she is a black female immigrant Muslim who wears a hijab refugee. That's like a quintuple minority, right? And so I want you to un unpack a little bit for us. Um, you know, what is some of the Islamophobia that you're continuing to see, uh, again, grow here in the Republican Party? And, and why should people uh, care about that? I think that right with Ilhan Omar, you have the the double with a triple whammy of her of her gender, her race, and uh, her religion, and I think they they all play a role. Let me start with um, with her race, with her being black, with being born in in, in Africa. Um, historically, in American politics, American uh, the American political system has tended to crack down very hard against black politicians who made anti-imperial critiques of the United States. I think there's this deeply felt anxiety that black Americans because of their experience might not necessarily see America's role in the world as, as benign as white American leaders often want to portray it. And they may feel solidarity with black people and other people in the global South who are victims of American foreign policy. And historically, the black Americans who have gone beyond just advocating civil rights and equality in the United States, but to making a critique of American foreign policy, you go back to W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson and uh, Muhammad Ali and Andrew Young, and then the way Martin Luther King was attacked when he criticized the American war in Vietnam, have tended to pay quite a high price for this. And so what Ilhan Omar, what, what distinguished Ilhan Omar was a far more, I think, uh, aggressive and a serious critic of American foreign policy and human rights abuses than most other black members of Congress. And she crossed a line that I think is part of it. It was described, it was phrased as her being anti-American. But what it really was, was her trying to call the US to account for its human rights abuses. Similarly, with for Muslims, um, the United States has, um, since at least, you know, uh, uh, September 11th, if not earlier in May, been at war with Muslim, various different Muslim countries and Muslim organizations. And historically in the United States, what has tended to happen is when the United States is at war with a nation or a group of people that share your religious or national or racial characteristics, the United States tends to often describe you as an enemy within. So German Americans were treated very brutally during World War I. Of course, Japanese Americans in turn. There's a long history of this. I have tremendous amount of fear about what is likely to happen to other Ch to Chinese and other Asian Americans. And we're already starting to see it as we move towards this kind of uh, this Cold War with, with China, which I think is, 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 is sparking a tremendous amount of anti-Asian um, racism. And uh, so the context for Ilhan Omar is, of course, and, and as you're saying, for Barack Obama and the claim that he was a Muslim uh, and therefore somehow disloyal or dangerous had to do with the context of the quote unquote war on terror, right? Uh, which made, I don't need to tell you, which put a target on the back of American Muslims and essentially made them often kind of guilty of disloyalty until proven innocent. And now it might be over to, possible for some people to overcome that if they are willing to become slavish defenders of whatever the United States government does, right? And you can try to 
prove your loyalty, right? Just like a Chinese, you can become a, uh, but that's something Ilhan Arm was not willing to do because she doesn't believe it, right? She doesn't believe that all of the things that America says about the good it's doing in the world are correct. She actually thinks a lot of things America is doing, including in the Muslim world are wrong. And she had the audacity to say those things um, and including to talk about, she was a very harsh critic of the human rights abuses of a whole number of American allies, including Muslim allies like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but also Israel. Um, and so she therefore brought upon her a whole a array of different critics. You know, obviously it was the her, her criticism of Israel and alleged anti-Semitism that got the most attention. But I strongly suspect that if they were popping champagne in the Israeli embassy when she was removed, they were doubly popping champagne if they drink champagne in the in the embassies of the Saudis and the Emiratis, because she was at least as fervent a moral critic of their policies than she was of Israel's policy. You know, we, we could talk for an hour and hours on uh, Republican Islamophobia, but I kind of want to focus in my question to you on liberal Islamophobia. Right, the the Islamophobia which has come about uh, from the Democratic Party and, and so-called progressive uh, politicians, because I don't want people to think that it's isolated to conservatives, even though it's predominantly in conservative circles. But for example, uh, you know, as you remember during the 2010. Uh, Park 51 Community Center controversy in lower Manhattan, uh, which was infamously known as the Ground Zero Mosque controversy. For those people who don't know, the Park 51 project was going to be a $100 million, 10-story project in lower Manhattan, similar to the 92nd Street Y, where people were going to get to be able to come together, play basketball, take culinary classes, uh, have an interfaith prayer room, have talks. And, and because of that, there was vitriolic right-wing uh, just opposition uh, but what really really was a gut punch to the 10 million american muslims was the fact that you even had so-called liberal politicians like howard dean at the time who was the head of the dnc and former senate majority leader harry reid you know you've had the clintons both hillary and bill clinton at democratic national convention speeches saying things like if you're a muslim and you're against terrorism you're we want you to join us as though you know we muslims can only be seen through that national security framework and what people often forget sometimes when hillary clinton and barack obama were duking it out in a democratic democratic presidential primary uh, many people remember there was a famous photograph of barack obama wearing a white kenyan uh, turban and, and headdress and garb uh, you know, that was leaked to the public to insinuate that he was a Muslim. And that was actually leaked by the Hillary Clinton campaign at the time, according to The Guardian. And so, Peter, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about how Islamophobia has not only permeated into American politics, per primarily in the Republican Party, but again, how we're also seeing it, uh, you know, in, in, in liberal progressive circles as, as well, and, and how that fares for the 10 million American Muslims who call the United States their home. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I, if I had to guess that I would guess in the 2024 presidential campaign, the 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 quote unquote threat of Sharia law will not have will not be discussed as much in the Republican primary as it was in previous years. And that's because the focus of American foreign policy has shifted away from um, from the Middle East and South Asia towards China. So there will be more of a focus on uh, the kind of alleged disloyalty of Chinese Americans, or at least if any Asian Americans don't don't kind of toe the line. On, but that doesn't mean that um, that uh, the deep Islamophobia in the Republican Party has gone away. I mean, it is essentially, I don't need to tell you, essentially impossible, as far as I know, to basically be 
a prominent Muslim Republican, um, uh, you know, because essentially the party sees your very religion itself as some as violating the Republican Party's kind of values, you know, which are essentially a kind of white Christian nationalism. Um, and I think right. in the Democratic Party, it's um, it's a little more subtle. First of all, there are there are Democrats who just don't show courage under political pressure as they were in around that whole 9-11 kind of space issue. But I also think there's a more subtle kind of Islamophobia. And I think in a way you see it, as you were saying, in the kind of in the way in which politicians say, you know, if you're a Muslim against terrorism, you're great, right? I mean, which is whereas with other groups, there's not this qualification, right? Like, you know, it's like if you're a Jew, but you're not a, you know, you're not a, you're not a, a, a money, a money launderer. You know, it's like some other anti-Semitic stereotypes. Like, right. <laughs> why, why would there be an assumption that you were? You know, it's like, and even if you think back to, you know, what, how the Democrats responded to Trump's Islamophobia at the convention, right, with Kizer Khan, the father of now. Seems like a very admirable man. He gave a very moving speech. But the fact that the only Muslim that you could bring up, or the Muslim that you gave this high-profile, uh, you know, uh, podium to, had to be someone whose son had been in the U.S. military, right. Exactly. right? Was already reflected this defensiveness, right? You know, as if, uh, as if other people didn't need to be the fathers of, you know, of fallen soldiers in order to be able to go and speak. So I think that this still remains a problem, and you see it. Um, and I think where Muslims tend to be particularly vulnerable in the Democratic Party, if they want to be involved in politics, is especially if they ever advocate for Palestinian rights. Now, of course, it's not only Muslims who would advocate for Palestinian rights, and not all Muslims do advocate for Palestinian rights. But if Muslims are um, might be might be somewhat more attuned to that issue because Palestinians are a largely Muslim population, the American political system has generally quite limited tolerance for anyone, but especially for Muslim government officials or politicians advocating for uh, Palestinian rights. And that often has been, I mean, I think it seems like every time you have a, a, an administration and they try to appoint some Muslims to some positions, there's some mini or not so mini controversy about where pe about the fact that they've said something sympathetic to the Palestinians. And that's but, another way. Did, did you see what happened in Canada recently? Justin Trudeau appointed a new Islamophobia envoy. Her name's Amira Al-Ghawabi. And the province of Quebec, right? The right-wing province of Quebec, which passed a blatantly Islamophobic racist law called Bill 21, was offended as a province that she was appointed and they were calling on her to apologize for columns that she had written calling the racist law racist and said that we don't even need we don't even need an islamophobia envoy we don't actually i wrote a piece for georgetown last week saying that the u.s should have uh, an islamophobia envoy just like canada and we've actually had an anti-semitism envoy as you know since 2004 uh, and you know, and 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 just this sort of glaring sort of duality when it comes to being a Muslim in today's world, but being an American Muslim in today's world, and also understanding. And and again, I made this distinction throughout today, and I'll make it until the day that I die. Is that obviously that Islamophobia, just like anti-Semitism, 
is a global form of anti of racism, right? And so the American Islamophobia is going to be very different than European Islamophobia and Asian Islamophobia. And I want to shift our focus a little more uh, to the European and Asian side of things. And my second to last question to you is, how do you view Islamophobia within the European and Asian context in terms of the, the policies we're seeing in the EU and the levels of genocidal Islamophobia that we're seeing in places like China uh, and Myanmar? And, uh, and, and why should that be important to people that are sitting here in the United States or in other places where they might not be facing these issues every day? I think that there is a, a really a global struggle um, between two visions of nationhood. One is the idea that uh, countries should at least aspire to the notion that of equality under the law, irrespective of your race, religion, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. Um, and the other is that countries are really the property of one dominant tribe, you know, race, religion, ethnic group. And everybody else basically either should have second-class citizenship or no citizenship and basically are guests in the country. And as long as they are submissive, maybe they can stay. And if not, then, um, uh, then, uh, then they'll be very severely punished. Um, and I think that um, what you see is that um, that struggle is playing itself out in Europe about whether a French identity can be capacious and liberal enough to truly include the very large number of Muslims who live in France or the large number of Muslims who live or the significant number of Muslims who live in, in Italy. Um, um, and it's playing itself out in India, um, which um, tragically, uh, you know, is kind of moving further and further from the secular ideals of some of its founders um, towards being a country that identifies itself as a kind of Hindu state. Um, um, and um, you see it in Israel-Palestine, um, uh, where you have a kind of a Jewish supremacy. I, I think that Israel is to some degree, a bit of a model for the kind of Hindu supremacy that Narendra Modi has been promoting in um, in India, um, and and of course in in China, which was which is not which is a you know not a not a not a liberal democratic political system at all. So where you can't even again, you also have a kind of a Han Chinese supremacy, right? Uh, in which within the context of this, and it's extremely brutal because you, it's basically a deeply authoritarian, almost totalitarian state. And within that, you have this basically effort to settle and colonize and dominate non-Han Chinese populations, whether they be Tibetans or Mongolians or particularly Uyghurs. And I think that the challenge for the United States is actually, uh, is, to, is to be willing to fight for the principle of liberal democracy and equality under the law in 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 when it, in in both countries which are adversaries like like China, it's quite easy now for American politicians to condemn what China is doing in Xinjiang. It's only it's very rare for someone to do what Ilhan Omar did, which is which is note the way in which China used America's own war on terror to make it easier to justify their treatment. And it's also very rare to do what she did on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is to talk about what India is doing to its Muslim population, because India is now supposed to be our big ally in Asia against China, right? And so the challenge is to try to fight for those principles across the board, regardless of whether the, 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 the countries that are doing the oppression are, are allies or, or are friends, and regardless of which ethnic and religious group is doing the oppression, right? Um, um, uh, there, are, there, are, there again, there are Muslim uh, uh, dominated governments that are 
that are brutally oppressive. There are Hindu governments, there are Chinese governments, there are, you know, Israel is, is oppresses Palestinians, there are Christian governments in Europe. And so it seems to me one has to try to take a, a universal principle in defense of human rights and equality under the law in all of these cases. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing, you know, the rise of, major, like you said, majoritarian nations, right? The, the majority trying to uh, quell the minority. And, and that leads to my, to, to my last question, Peter, um, and, and that's on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, I've said it at the beginning, I've said it in the middle, I've said it at the end of today's show, I've said it in my books, I say that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in many regards are two fruits of the same poisonous Abrahamic tree. And again, the nexus of that is global white supremacy, right? And, uh, and, and in many cases, as I mentioned, with the Tree of Life uh, synagogue shooter, um, you know, they, you know, saying that it's the Jews bringing the Muslims into this country. Uh, a couple of years uh, around that time, uh, there was a shooting uh, at uh, a Chabad uh, house in Poway, California, uh, that killed a 60-year-old woman who was trying to protect a rabbi. What most people don't know about the po Poway Chabad shooting is the week before, that shooter actually caused a fire at a nearby mosque in Escondido, California. Right, so he was attacking Muslims one week and he was attacking Jews on another week. And, and I always tell people, the more we can serve as allies for one another and understand the commonalities between not only our communities, but what our communities are facing, uh, only then are we gonna be able to succeed, right? I, I firmly believe that only when Islamophobia is taken as seriously as anti-Semitism by our federal governments, law enforcement agencies uh, in the West, I think only then will we begin to see the same protections and, and sort of, uh, you know, the, the bolstering of the anti-racism movement. Like I said, you know, we've had an anti-Semitism envoy since 2004. We don't have an Islamophobia envoy for 31% of the world's population. Right. And, and similarly, in Europe, there are laws that protect, uh, you know, anti-Semitic uh, that, that, that prosecute anti-Semitic attacks. But those same Islamophobic acts are not being pr prosecuted with that same bias motivation uh, multipliers. And so my last question to you uh, for our for our viewers here is, you know, what are some, what are the commonalities that you see? What is the nexus, the concentric circles that you see between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism? And more importantly, how can Muslims and Jews and people of conscience of, of, of all backgrounds band together and, and understand that we are all really fighting the same battle against global racism? Thanks. Yeah, I think that the the basic if if you view the United States or France or or Britain or Italy as essentially a white Christian nation, um, you are likely to see both Muslims and Jews as a threat um, uh, because uh, they're not um, they're not. Uh, Christian, some Jews may be defined as white, but they're, they're, they're they 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 kind of are a fly in the ointment of your effort to create a kind of of a kind of ethnically kind of religiously pure country, and also they will generally tend to oppose your efforts at white Christian supremacy because if you're not a white Christian, white Christian supremacy isn't so great. Um, and so I think I think there have been really there have been very powerful examples of that solidarity that existed. I think with the Bernie Sanders campaign, for instance, which I think did very well among Muslim voters, for instance, um, kind of belying the notion that somehow Muslim voters wouldn't vote for a Jewish candidate. But I think it's also very important to say it's very important for for me to say um, that sometimes. The, the, the fight against what is called anti-Semitism actually becomes a way, a, a way of actually denying Muslims equal rights. The fight against anti-Semitism has to be a fight for Jewish equality. If you define opposite, if you define 
um, uh, anyone who opposes Israel as a Jewish state because they want Israel to be an equal, a state that provides equality under the law to Palestinians. If you say that that's anti-Semitism, then what you're gonna do is you're actually going to be calling a very wide group of people, many of whom simply believe in the principle of equality, which is the opposite of bigotry. You're gonna be calling them bigots. And then once you call them bigots, you have opened the door to, to infringe upon their rights. And we're seeing that across the United States today, right? And with the passage of what's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which is being pushed by the Israeli government, pushed by American Jewish organizations. That definition, which has very little scholarly support among people who actually study anti-Semitism and Jewish studies, is basically a mechanism to say that if you challenge the existence of Israel as a Jewish state, uh, and why would a Palestinian want to live in a Jewish state any more than a Jew would want to live in a Christian state? If you challenge that, then you are considered anti-Semitic. And so for there to be a true alliance and really effective alliance between Muslims and Jews, I think it has to be based on the principle of equality for everybody, equality for Jews, both in Israel and the diaspora, equality for Muslims everywhere, equality for Palestinians. And what I worry about is happening, actually, is something very, very different and very perverse. If you look at what Deborah Lipstadt is doing, who's the anti-Semitism envoy, who basically is defining her job in significant measure as calling as anti-Semitic people who challenge the who challenged Zionism, she's also now serving as a kind of, um, she's now basically also becoming a kind of def a defender of countries like the UAE, right? And essentially declaring that they are not anti-Semitic because they're friends with Israel, right? This is not what the struggle against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be captured by authoritarian governments for their own purposes, it's supposed to be a struggle against any government that denies human equality, whether to Muslims or Jews or anybody else. Peter Beinart, uh, my friend, uh, public intellectual extraordinaire, I want to thank you for joining us here for the second episode of Unpacking Islamophobia. Uh, we are honored to have you, and uh, we hope to have more conversations with you in the future. Thank you for joining us.